Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Amazing. Well, if you guys uh, have a Bible, you can take that out or something to take notes on. We're going to dive into the message. Um, we are in a series right now, um, a short series called Planting, where we're talking about us as a church plant. And that might be strange language for some of you, but it's common within the church world that when a new church starts, um, we use the analogy of planting, where in the tech world it might be a startup or something like that. Um, and planting, I love that imagery. Uh, because it's, it, it creates um, a beautiful picture of what, what God is actually doing in planting a new seed. And in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John is writing that book. At the very beginning, has this vision of Jesus. And in the middle of his vision, Jesus is standing in the middle of seven lampstands. And these lampstands refer to the churches. And seven, there's a lot of numerology in Revelation. Seven's a number of completeness. So this is, these are letters to the church. But the churches are represented by lampstands. And I had a mentor uh, one time refer to me, just asked me about light church. He's like, what does your lampstand look like? What is the unique kind of personality and wiring of your church? And so we're spending just a few weeks addressing that. We're doing that here at Encinitas and in downtown especially if you're new, or if we're just even to give language to who we are as a church. And so we're highlighting six different things make up um, our church. And th- these are not unique to our church only, but put together they make up a little bit of the DNA of Light Church. So these are the six. Community, contribution, conviction, communion, creativity, and compassion. And so... Today, we're going to be focusing on that fifth one. What does it mean to be a community of creativity? What does it mean to value at a theological and a missiological level God's ordination for us to be creative agents in this world? But before I did that, um, because last week we were online and the week before that I was on vacation, Steve did a phenomenal job, I wanted to just spend a few moments speaking pastorally into the first four into kind of my heart behind community and contribution, conviction and communion. Um, And then we'll spend the last half of our morning talking about what does it mean for us to be a creative community. And so what we're going to do is, if you could, we're going to be reading Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. If you could stand with me for the reading of the word. We do this as a sign of our bodies to honor that this is the word of God. Um, you'll notice that um, there may be some words that I put. Uh, um, okay, good. They take them out. So we're going to read this, and then we're going to. I'm going to be pointing out where each of these six things is found with the passage. So Acts chapter two, verse forty-two. I'm going to be reading a translation called the NIV. This is talking. This is the first description of the church ever. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's conviction. And to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayers, communion with the Lord and one another. And everyone was filled with awe, speaks to the creative activity of God. 
at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. There's community. They sold property and possessions, which is our picture of contribution. That first line says that all the believers were together and had everything in common. There's this beautiful picture of not only community of like, man, what a great group of friends. This community was so drastically different that the world had never seen anything like it. And in a world that was already very communal, right? In the ancient Near East, this was a picture uh, of some of the most tight-knit webbed families that ever existed. Yet this kind of community stood out amongst all the other ones. And I think for us uh, in our culture, where we live in a more individualistic culture, like Stevie talked about, more than ever before, we have to reclaim this with intention. Because if we are not careful, the church will begin to reflect the individual value of our culture rather than the communal one that God ordained in the very beginning. Harvard University came out with an article called Loneliness in America. And in this article, it says that we need to return to an idea that was central to our founding and is at the heart of many great religious traditions. We have commitments to ourselves, but we also have vital commitments to each other, including those who are vulnerable. So here's Harvard just looking at it kind of from their secular lens. They're saying, we've got to get back to community. We need to be able to do this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor and a theologian during Nazi Germany, wrote this in his masterpiece book, Life Together. He said, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end of all his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause, he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his commission, his work. Then he's going to quote Martin Luther here. The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies, and he who will not suffer this does not want to be of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends, to sit among roses and lilies, not with the bad people, but the devout people. If Christ had done what you are doing, who would ever have been spared? And the point that, that Bonhoeffer is trying to make here in quoting Luther, he says, our idea of community to quote Luther, looks like sitting among the roses and the lilies, sitting amongst friends and the devout. That's a type of community, but the kind of community that was established in the church looked at you were sitting with people different than you, sometimes at odds with you, and because of Christ, you were unified together around something bigger than just your affinity or same thinking or same age stage. There's something deeper that was calling you together. And I love Martin Luther's line that says, if Christ would have done the same thing that you did, none of us would have been spared. And so this is just an opportunity for us, especially as we just talked about getting ready to kind of launch our open tables. Um, I recognize that opening up your table for strangers, opening up your table for people who you don't know, may sound drastic, but is that not what Christ did for you? 
And so all we are doing is not something heroic. We're not doing something other than simply following Jesus in his extension of community to the world around us. We, as followers of Jesus, who've been welcomed to a table that we should have not been invited to, need to continue this practice in cultivating community. Because it's hard. It's hard to build community. I know this. This week, my, my daughter started at Santa Fe Christian School. She's a sophomore. I've never done private school before. And so showing up at a new campus, um, she was nervous, but so was I. Um, I don't know if you've ever dropped your kid off at a new school, whether it's like you're dropping your kid off at kindergarten or something like that, or if you've showed up at a new school, or maybe you remember the first time you showed up at a new church or light church, that feeling in your stomach of like, oh my gosh, what if like I trip? You know, what if someone makes fun of me? What if there's something in my teeth? And underneath all of those feelings, there's this deep, there's this deeper fear that says, will I belong? That doesn't, that isn't just secluded to like elementary school and high school. We still walk into a room asking that question, will I belong? And my friends, if this is your church, every single week people walk through those doors asking that question, do I belong here? And no amount of preaching or worship can answer that question, but you can. You can invite someone you do not know to sit right next to you. When you're talking after service in a circle with your friends, here's a really practical thing. Instead of making a circle, make a half circle. Just have room. If you see someone coming in looking like this, that's a good sign that they don't, they're new. Invite them in. Better yet, invite them to lunch. Start an open table. Invite them to it. And if you're that person, you're like, man, I wish someone would do this for me, then how about you do it for someone else? Be that, be that cultivation of community. And I have to tell you this because the larger churches become, the easier it is to think that everyone else knows someone. Can, can I tell you? It's not true. There are many people in this room surrounded by other people who are desperately lonely. And if that's you, we're so glad you're here. And our hope is that this would be a place through open tables and through serving, that you can find community. But I also want to say, every one of us has to take responsibility for this thing. We cannot have community based because we have good programs. Community has to be a posture before it's ever a program. And so I just wanted to spend just a few moments just talking about that. If we're to be a, a church built around a table, not just a stage, we have to be continue to be drawn back to that place. The second thing about our church is that we want to be a community of contribution. In Acts 2.45, it says that they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. When's the last time you threw something up at offer up just to go and make sure someone else was taken care of? I mean, it's, this is practical. That's exactly what they were doing. It wasn't they're like, oh, they had a great like Jewish 401k that was building that they could like skim off the top. They saw people in need in their community and they said, I don't have anything to give you. Let me go sell some of my possessions and property to make sure that we find out later the widows and the orphans and those in need were taken care of. I've watched many of you open up your homes for people to live in there who have no place to live. I've watched you guys give generously. I would say as a church, this is something that we do really, really well, but it's something, especially within our culture, that we, we have this, this kind of subversive narrative that's just thinking like, 
I don't have too much because look at everyone else around me. Rather than, where are the people that have need? And how can I be a part of joining in God's work to do that? Mother Teresa so eloquently said, God gives us things to share. God doesn't give us things to hold. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8 says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your hearts to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. The, the psychological statistics around giving and generosity are staggering. That we actually feel most alive. We have the greatest levels of dopamine. Um, we have the greatest sense of um, usefulness and purpose when we are people who are actively living into contribution. Now, now before you think of it, this is not just about money. It, ha- it, can't, it has to do with our finances and material goods. But this has to do, again, with not just a, a practice or a program. It has to do with our posture. It has to do with our time and our talent and our treasure. Listen to this verse in 1 Corinthians 14. It says, What then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Everything is to be done for the building up. And so Paul's instruction to this early church is, everyone comes to contribute. But more often than not, the conversation that I have when people are talking about the church they go to is, are they fed? Which is, it's fair, I understand the language of that. But if we showed up at church saying, and again, this is speaking specifically to those who consider themselves a follower of Jesus, or this is your community. What if you drove here and on the way you said, Lord, how can I contribute today? How can I see someone and I can make sure that they feel encouraged? I can pray for someone today. How can I, how can I, adjust, how can I adjust how I spend my time or my money, my resources, and make sure that I continue to live into generosity? Because if, when we begin to start as a church, Seeing ourselves, everyone, again, this takes everyone in this room, showing up that I'm like, I am a contributor to this church. It creates this beautiful ecosystem where we can all thrive. The third one is conviction. The, the opening line of Acts 2, 42 says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. Line one, what did the early church look like? It looked like a learning community that was willing to be convicted under the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. And we see this all throughout the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God were active in refining and shaping and challenging a community of God that was so, it was so fragile, it was so sensitive in that time. And yet the Holy Spirit is relentless. They no, no, this is who you are. The Word of God continued to form this community. And in, again, in our world, we have a commitment as a church to be a community of conviction. And what's beautiful, and if you missed last week, you can go listen to it online, is that the churches and even the denominations who choose to live with a high conviction to the Word of God are the communities and the churches that seem to last, not only in a sustaining way, but tend to grow. There's all sorts of research that I share in the sermon that you can look at. Um, There's a book that just came out. It says, The Myth of a Dying Church a phenomenal read in terms of the statistics we hear of the churches in decline, all things like What they're not measuring is when you look at the group of people, men and women, who have devoted themselves to Jesus and are convicted, living convicted, that is the only group within Christianity, the only sect that is not only maintaining but is growing faster than the, um, the population growth. It's growing, it's robust. 
Theodore Beza, who was the predecessor for John Calvin, said this, let it be your pleasure to remember that the church is an anvil which has worn out many a hammer. And so we continue to be a church and a community of conviction. You might look practically, what does that look like? Um, honestly, baptism. If you've not been baptized today, it is a public declaration of conviction. I am choosing to identify with the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. I am dead to my old self, and I'm now living alive in the new life that Christ has called me to. If you've been baptized, then live baptized. That's what it means to live a life of conviction. The fourth one is this picture of communion. In, the, in verse 42, after it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, and to breaking of bread and to prayer. That, that, that picture, breaking bread into prayer, is a picture of, of communion. Don't think of communion like the, the bread and the grape juice. Think of communion as union with Christ. It's abiding, it's fellowship. It's a beautiful picture of what we are created to do. If, if I were to rank these, by the way, these different convictions are not ranked, um, communion would probably be the top one. What are we about? Why do we exist as a church? is that you may have space and you may have opportunity to be united with Christ, to abide with Him, to rest in Him. That's why we exist as a church. J.C. Ryle says this, Abide in me, says Jesus. Cling to me, stick fast to me, live the life of close and intimate communion with me, get nearer to me, roll every burden on me, cast your whole weight on me, never let Go, your hold on me for a moment. Be, as it were, rooted and planted in me. Do this, and I will never fail you. I will ever abide in you. John 15 in the Message Version says this, Live in me. Make your home in me, just as I do in you. In the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only by being joined to the vine, you can't bear fruit unless you are joined with me. I'm the vine. You're the branches. When you're joined with me and I with you, the relation in, intimate and organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. Separated, you can't produce a thing. And the reason why we gather on Sunday morning is for some of us, it's the one time in a week we just get to pause and we just get to be like, oh, I'm, I am not, I say I'm connected to the vine. I'm reminded. But my friends, it cannot be just a Sunday thing. It's why we, if you've never grabbed them, we have practicing the way cards as you leave. Those are practical ways that you can implement things into your life that help sustain a life of a posture of opening yourself up to Jesus. It's why we have a Lectio Divina journal that, that I use every morning in my life. I love seeing my kids watch me, watch me do this. They come and they see me and I'm spending time with Jesus. I'm abiding with him. I'm sharing in communion. And the last one we're going to be spending the remaining of our time on is, is kind of the focus of our morning. And it's the term creativity. That we believe one of the unique things about Light Church is this is a uniquely creative church. Uh, we are not unique because we create, the, we believe that every single one of us gets to have the opportunity to be creative. But when you look at the collective makeup of, our, of Light Church, when I ask about your jobs and what you do, I would say that we have 
a larger amount of people who are artisans, that live in creative fields, that see themselves in that. And so five years into this church, it's pretty safe to say that this is a uniquely creative church. Some people have actually told me they've stopped coming to our church because they didn't feel artsy enough. Um, not the point. <laughs> this is, that's kind of the working against the idea of community. But my hope in over the next few minutes is if you're like, well, I'm not creative or I'm not artsy, for you to realize that theologically speaking, that's inaccurate. You are a creative. But also for us to continue to celebrate, regardless if you're good at like, you know, stick figures or not, that we can continue to champion and champion and champion this being a community that continues to celebrate the arts and celebrates creativity. Um, I want to show you a picture of a ceiling um, at the Vatican. This isn't the Sistine Chapel, which I already got roasted on for taking a picture in, sorry. Um, but when we went to Italy a few months ago, uh, um, one of the things that everyone says is you have to go to the Vatican. And to be honest, I didn't know much about it. Um, I knew that it was its own like sovereign country, the small, smallest sovereign country in the world. That was pretty cool. I knew the, the Pope lived there. I knew it had like a lot of history. But what I didn't realize is the Vatican is essentially an art museum. Every inch of that place, which it is massive, you could spend a week and not even see everything there is to see, looks like this. It's just art. It's just, it's just creativity everywhere you go. And this did not happen overnight. This place continued to curate and welcome art for hundreds and hundreds of years, really beginning around the time of the Renaissance. And so what's fascinating is if you look throughout church history, there have been moments when art has played a pioneering, functional role in terms of the life of the church. And the Vatican is one of those places where you kind of, you're reminded like, oh, you see, nowadays, when you think of Christian art, a lot of times we think of it as like us trying to copy Hollywood. Or us, and you know this because every time you mention a Christian movie, someone says, but it's actually good, which means you're assuming it's actually not. How sad. Because I believe when the church is at its best, it is the epicenter and the locus point of true creativity and true beauty. And that's been when the church is, sometimes its highest moments of church history is when it has seen its, her place as a place that welcomes creativity and welcomes the arts. Now, I wanna begin by just pointing something out, that when we read our Bibles, we, we do this for a number of reasons, but one of the primary reasons we read the Bible is to figure out who God is. And there are dozens, actually hundreds, of attributes in this book of what God is like. And some have become more popular than others. And so I wanted to, to point out a, a couple um, that seem to have risen to the surface. If you grew up in a more Reformed tradition, um, and, and you probably grew up in a tradition that really presented God as king, that God is, that Jesus Christ is king, 
and that to see God clearly, you need to see him in his sovereignty and in his authority and his kingship, which incredibly vital all throughout scripture. If you grew up in a more charismatic tradition, then you probably were presented God primarily not as king, but primarily as father. And there is this intimate and affectionate, sometimes even emotional element to who God is and how much he loves you. But one attribute of God that I have seen severely underappreciated um, is that we serve a creative God. And I, and I say this from a theological point. When I look at the scriptures, it seems that God likes to present himself as creator, not as like a secondary attribute, but as a primary attribute. Yes, God is king. Yes, God is father. Those should never be diminished. A matter of fact, they should be held hand in hand all the time. But I wanted to remind us this morning that when the Bible chooses to introduce God in really pivotal moments, it doesn't choose king or father. Oftentimes, God chooses to reveal himself as creator first. Look at Genesis chapter 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. I mean, think about it. This is the earliest document we have pointing us to who God is, and God chooses to reveal himself as a creator. One of the other oldest books in the Bible is the book of Job. And Job is a fascinating book. I'd love to teach on it sometime, but you probably all leave after week two. It just gets so depressing. But Job is fascinating if you look at it from a 30,000-foot view because it's doing something really interesting. Job is, if you know the story, undergoes severe tragedy and is beginning to start trying to figure out why is suffering happening to him. And he has these terrible friends that come alongside and give him terrible advice. But if you ever read Job, a lot of their advice sounds like it's from like the book of Proverbs. Doesn't sound, all of it doesn't sound like bad advice. And what we believe is happening is each one of those friends is representing one of the predominant ancient Near Eastern narratives on why suffering exists. It's fascinating. So each friend is, is representing a, a specific stream of thinking around suffering. And all of them fall short. And if you look at the book of Job, God never speaks. He never shows up to silence any of the friends. He never does anything until the very end. When Job, who's held it all together the entire time, finally loses it. And he just has this honest moment with God. Just like, I can't believe this has happened. I've only lived righteously. Why is this going, why is this going on? And in chapter 38, God finally speaks. But God never answers Job's question. Do you know what he does? Let me read it to you. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He says, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. <laughs> you never want to have God say that to you. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. 
Who stretched a measuring line across it on, on what where its footing set or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? And he goes on verse after verse, chapter, chapter. What does God do? He reveals himself as a creator. In Job's moment of, of theological questioning and doubt, God does not come and say, Sit down, let me explain why I did this and this. He says, where were you when I created? Do you know who I am? I mean, read, read, read Job 38 through the end. It is beautiful and humbling. But what God is doing is, do not forget I am the creative one. Which maybe, when we're suffering, that's the God that we need. A God who can take darkness and chaos and make life again. And that's exactly what happened in Job's life. It's such an underappreciated attribute of God. He literally describes God as an architect and a choir master. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation, set the dimensions, and laid the plumb line? Where were you when I had the stars start to sing? God says, he, what does he introduce Job? He says, I'm a choir master and an architect. I am a creative God. Blaise Pascal says, in difficult times, you must keep something beautiful in your heart. It's what God was doing for Job. If you look at another pivotal moment, arguably the most pivotal moment in all of human history, when Jesus shows up on the scene that our whole calendars are marked by it. <laughs> this week, our nine-year-old Vienna um, was having a debate with her little brother on when the earth started. She says, it started 2023 years ago. And he's like, no, it didn't. And like, started like millions of years ago, and this like young earth, old earth creation debate going on in the background. But I was like, I'm like, Vienna, it didn't start 2020 years ago. She's like, yes, it is, when Jesus was born. I'm like, do you know there was like time before Jesus was born? She's like, what? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, he like showed up. Like, and she's like, she's like, she was like, oh my gosh, like her whole life's been alive. <laughs> I mean, our calendars, regardless if you're a Christian or not, revolve around the life of Jesus. And at the very beginning of Jesus' life, the Apostle John in his gospel says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made, and in him was life. How does John introduce Jesus? As a creator. The beginning of Scripture. The man known for suffering. The introduction of Jesus. All choose to start with God as creator. What about the end of the Bible? Well, if you turn to Revelation chapter 21, I'm just going to skip to verse 5. And that same person who John 1, at the ending of his vision, says, He who was seated on the throne said, I love this, I am making everything new. The Bible opens and ends and culminates with God being a creator. And so, my friends, if you are trying to figure out who is God like, a good place to start is that we serve a creative God. What does that mean for us? What does it mean for us in Genesis 127 says that, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful. Two things here. Number one, when God made all of this, all of creation, at the crescendo of this poetic moment, he creates us in his image. We are image bearers. 
And then the very first thing he says to us, the very first command, the very first words ever spoken to humanity were be fruitful. A lot of times we think that has to do with childbirth. Um, that's really the second word that's going to come later. The word be fruitful is the Hebrew word para, which means to create. The first command given to humanity is to create. This is why I said, if you think like, well, I guess I'm not artsy enough to go to light church. No, no, no. You are a creative. You are creative simply because you were made in the image of the creator. You cannot extract the two. Let me show you a, another beautiful piece of art that should be hanging up in the Vatican. We had back to school night this week uh, for my son's school. This is my son's self-portrait. It's, it's, it looks just like him, right? It's, it's all about me. He says, did you know that um, I enjoy my family? I am joyful because I am trustworthy. I'm trustworthy because I'm, I'm not scared. I'm brilliant because I do my homework. <laughs> this masterpiece, which will be hanging up in my house for a few weeks until we find something else to hang up. Um, uh, I was thinking about this weekend, read this sermon, and I was thinking about, <laughs> did you realize you're God's self-portrait? Some of you look kind of like this. <laughs> like, <laughs> When God finishes creation, he's like, okay, last thing I'm going to do is I'm going to make a self-portrait. It's, li it's literally what he's saying. And he made you. He made humanity. He made humanity to reflect his likeness, which is why the very first thing he says to them is, you know, go and create. The Hebrew word for God creating is bara, meaning creating from nothing. The word given to you is para, meaning creating from something. You are to reorganize the things that God has made to make something beautiful and orderly. But he did that by putting in you his likeness. So the next time you look at yourself in the mirror, right, you know, just think about Augustine's thing. Just think, I am the self-portrait of God. We are the image to the world, which is why any sin against someone being an image bearer of God is so heart-wrenching and heinous in the heart of God. Because we have disregarded, we have disregarded the divine dignity inside every single person as an image bearer, as a self-portrait of God. We have to carry that in our hearts. Now we might think, what about sin? Genesis chapter 3, right? The fall. Didn't it mess it up? You know what's amazing is that we did not lose our ability to bear the image of God in the fall. Even in the brokenness of the world, we continue to point not only back to who God is, but pointing forwards to new creation. I love what N.T. Wright says this. He says, here's the challenge, I believe, for the Christian artist, which, I'm, again, we all are, in whatever sphere, to tell the story of the new world so that people can taste it and want it, even while acknowledging the reality of the desert in which we presently live. I love this image. The job of the Christian artist, or the creative, if you prefer that term, is to actually give people a taste of the new world, the world that's to come. It's to remind people of all goodness, beauty, the, the things that just produce awe in people, all of those things exist in fullness in heaven. And when we create something truly beautiful, whether it's a building we're designing, a poem that we're writing, a song that's being published, 
whether, whether it's coming and it's organizing that beautiful Excel spreadsheets with graphs and pie charts, and you're just like, oh, here it is. Whether it's putting together your kids' pancakes and you put the chocolate chips just right to make a smiley face for them, all of those moments that produce awe inside the human spirit is telling them of the world that's to come. It's why it's so important to value the incredible imaginative potential of the human being. I love what Victor Hugo says, says, there's nothing like dreams to create the future. One of the unique qualities we possess as image bearers is that we get to imagine. We get to imagine what does not exist yet and then to create something towards that. What a divine, dignifying gift. Some of us are afraid to dream. I, I was one of them for a long time. I thought I was preserving myself or keeping myself safe. Can I, can I encourage you? Some of you guys need to dream. Imagine what does not exist yet and believe that you get to work with God to creating something restorative and beautiful that point people to new creation. Because this is in all of us. It's in all of us. The, the ancient thinkers, not just Christian or Judeo-Christian, but Plato and Aristotle and Augustine, had a term for what makes us uniquely human, and the, the term is called transcendentals. Think of the idea that it's transcending everyone. Every culture, every person longs or embeds or desires these things. And for thousands of years, they've identified these three things. Truth, goodness, and beauty are the things that make us human and are the deepest longings of the human heart. The, the Christian contribution to those, as opposed to Aristotle or Plato, is that we believe that God is the one who defines these three things. God is the one who defines truth. He's the one who defines goodness. And he's the one who defines what beauty is. Culture and our own selves do not get to define these three things. But I want to just talk just for a minute before we close here on having a renewed value as a church for the last one, for beauty. Having a renewed value to say, beauty matters. Historically, and by historically I say, in the past hundred years, the church has valued truth and goodness at high levels. But most of the church has completely forgotten about beauty. It's why we ask when we start talking about a Christian movie, we have to give it like a precursor, saying like, oh, but it's actually good. But when the church sees the reason why beauty exists, we're not just playing catch up to culture, we create culture. It's when the church is at its best. Russ Ramsey has an amazing book I'd recommend. It's called Rembrandt in the Wind. And in the book, he says this, the pursuit of beauty requires the application of goodness and truth for the benefit of others. Beauty is what we make of goodness and truth. Beauty takes the pursuit of goodness past mere personal ethical conduct to the work of intentional doing, intentionally doing good work, doing good to and for others. Beauty takes the pursuit of truth past the accumulation of knowledge to the proclamation and the application of truth in the name of caring for others. Beauty draws us deeper into community. We ache to share the experience of beauty with other people, to look at someone near us and say, did you hear that? Do you see that? How beautiful. Beauty is a power wielded by the hand of God. Romans 1.20 says this, 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, right? It's a created act. So what? So that people are without excuse. We create beauty to point to the Creator. We are mandated by God to join Him in this work. Why? Because it points people to the deeper longings of their heart. Did you know that Karl Barth, famous Swiss theologian, once said this? It was the music of Mozart that led me to the threshold of a world which in sunlight and storm, by day and by night, is a good and ordered world. Karl Barth claims that Mozart helped lead him to Christ. Someone he never met, but his music pointed him towards something that was far more beautiful than he could ever imagine. Just probably why Dostoevsky famously said that beauty will save the world. The reason I want to spend time on this isn't just to, just to kind of be like, we need to care about art and creativity, but if you look at our cultural moment, what's happening to truth right now? Because of the information age we live in, everyone is questioning how do we know something actually true? We don't trust institutions anymore or experts. And one of the falls of that is we actually, I'm saying culturally speaking, we have a hard time defining even what's good anymore. Doesn't it seem that what's good changes every like 10 years or even 10 months? So we live in a culture right now that is desperately trying to figure out what is truth and what is good. But the one thing our culture is still longing for and grav- even gravitating towards is beauty. We believe that beauty may be, in a missional sense, the greatest thing that we can pour our lives into in this world. Not just for beauty's sake, but for the gospel's sake. To let incredible things be made so that when people, when they're like, I don't know what's true, I don't even know what's good anymore, but that thing is beautiful. And when they start to travel along that journey of where does that beauty come from, we ultimately get to point back to the one who gave us the ability to create. When we're at the Vatican, um, you walk out and you get to see St. Peter's Basilica. And in 1546, at age 71, Michelangelo received the greatest and final commission of his life. Pope Paul III appointed him chief architect of the sprawling St. Peter's Basilica, the opulent centerpiece of the Vatican where popes were laid to rest in the home of the tallest dome in the world at the time. At 87 years old, Michelangelo was still the head architect for this building. And when asked about when he was going to be done designing, he responded with the words, Encora Empora, which means, I am still learning. He said these words at 87 years old. And I love, I love that picture. We can put the picture back up of St. Peter's Basilica. Because this dome, this this beautiful work of art that people all around the world who have no interest in Jesus are flocking to by the thousands, millions every year come to see this beautiful place. And these tour tour guides start to tell them the story that, and some of you guys know this, St. Peter's Basilica is called that because the Catholics believe that Peter is the first pope. 
And Peter is buried underneath those grounds, along with every pope since. And the reason we know that is because that used to be the archaeological grounds for Nero's Colosseum, where he used to send the Christians to be martyred. So Peter, most likely, was executed upside down on those very grounds when it was Nero's, who was Caesar at the time's Colosseum. But what a beautiful prophetic picture that we're where it used to be a land of martyrdom, now sits one of the most beautiful, long-lasting architectural masterpieces that points to a kingdom that will never perish. Francis Schaeffer, the Christian thinker, says this, and please hear this, no work of art is more important than the Christian's life. And every Christian is called to be an artist in this sense. The Christian's life is to be a thing of truth and also a thing of beauty in the midst of a lost and despairing world. So my commission to us as a church, a church that unapologetically sees ourselves as a creative community, that our life would be our greatest work of art. Would your life be like St. Peter's Basilica built upon the ruins of what used to be claimed for death and darkness, but now because of Jesus has been reclaimed for light and redemption? And build a life. Draws people into something that is not escapist. It's not shallow. It's not self-oriented and harmful. It is beautiful and self-giving and redemptive. And when people see it and they question truth and they question, when they question goodness, they look at you and say, but that's beautiful. Where is this coming from? And let it draw them to who Jesus is. Sarah, if you're around, I'm going to invite you just to come play some piano behind me as we get ready to pray. Just, just a couple of practical things before we close. Um, three things, if you're just like, you know, other than taking like an art class in Miracosta, what should I do, you know, to help live this out? Three things. Um, number one, this is great homework. This is the kind of homework you want. Would you delight in the beauty of God's creation this week. Like intentionally, slow down enough to enjoy that like first sip of the cappuccino you get from Ironsmith. Take the long way home so you can drive along the coast and catch a sunset. Enjoy the meal that you just purchased instead of just scarfing it down. Enjoy every single bite. Think about the chef who combined those flavors together from the Trader Joe's frozen meal you just cooked. <laughs> I mean, whatever it is. I, for me this week, I've been just trying to spend a lot of time, not, not just being creative, but like, Noticing, Romans says all of creation points to God so that no man is without excuse. So I'm just, I'm looking for God. In the small, in the ordinary, in the beautiful, and it has been soul redeeming. So that's just number one. Number two, would you spend some time this week creating something that doesn't have a functional purpose? Like some of, you, some of your jobs mean you create something that you have to go turn in or it produces any kind of utility to it. But this week, would you find some time just to create something that has no utility? No 
no consumeristic value, but you just, you're creating. And when you're doing that, would you, would you prayerfully say, Spirit of God, would you help connect me to who you are as the creator? And then the last thing I would just encourage you with is look at your life. Your life is a work of art. What are you creating? When people look at you, do they see a beauty that's stirring up awe towards the ultimate creator? Or or have we found ourselves just caught up in a life that has essentially been created for us, that lacks substance? Live a life of true kingdom beauty. Would you stand to your feet with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we come to you and we are reminded again and again, sometimes at the most pivotal moments in all of Scripture, you are a creative God. Thank you that Revelation 21, you tell us you make everything new. You're constantly renewing and regenerating even things that were dead. Would you do it here in our hearts? God, I pray if there's someone here who has not been renewed, that this morning that they would be able to look at the evidence around them and say, you know what, all of this is pointing to a creative God. Lord, that this creative God longs to renew and regenerate their heart. Lord, I pray that this morning they would open up their heart to you, Jesus. You come and make your home in them and their home in you. Lord, I pray for every single one of us to see our lives as an extension of your creative activity in the world. Lord, regardless how artsy we feel or don't feel, Lord God, thank you that you have called all of us to para, to create with the things you've made. So I pray that you'd fill us with the Spirit of God to do just that. And Lord, lastly, I pray that as we look at creative things we make, that you would allow us to look at our life as the ultimate work of art that you are actively working on, Holy Spirit, that we join you in that work. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.